Good evening. I have so appreciated the videos that are being done and the couples that express their thoughts on marriage, on parenting. Every time we do one of these uh, studies in this series, it adds so much. And it just makes me realize the quality of people that we have in this fellowship. I'm really grateful for that. Um, I was thinking as I was watching the video just now and thinking about the topic tonight, the verse tonight, as well as last week, and even some of the other weeks that... uh, Though, if we do a show of hands, we have lots of parents here tonight. We have some who are not, and we have some, in fact, who are single. And so you might be asking, well, what would this study have at all to do with me? Everything. Because these are principles. So we happen to be taking these principles and showing how they apply to a parent-child relationship. But I have found that the principles we discussed last week and this week are pretty pretty um, pervasively applicable to every kind of relationship. When it comes to any relationship, we want to nurture and we want to nourish. And uh, so you can pick up some of these truths for any relationship and find that it will add health to them. Why don't we open up this evening in prayer. Lord, we've gathered together as your children, and uh, we're marching along in this series and looking at exactly what your word has to say about some pretty key issues in life. You've designed life. We're created in your image. And you designed life not only to work, but to work well. You want us to be fulfilled, Lord. And we find that we are when we do what you say, when we look at the owner's manual and apply it to our life. And so help us, Lord, once again as we look at a very important issue, how to fashion a precious young life. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6 tonight, verse 4, again. There was a group of expectant fathers in a hospital waiting room while their wives were in the delivery room. Each of them was expecting a child. So the nurse walked out into the room where the fathers were, and she announced to one man that he was the proud father of twins. And he stood up and he said, Now that is a coincidence, because I play for the Minnesota Twins. A little while later, a nurse came in again and said to another father, You're the proud father of triplets. He was shocked. But he said, that's amazing because I work for the 3M company. Just then, the third fellow fell face down on the floor, (laughs) curled up and moaned. And somebody said, are you all right? He said, yeah, it's just that I happen to work for the 7-Up company. (laughs) We know that having children can be pretty exciting, but... There might be a limit to how exciting you want life to be. Some people in our fellowship have lots of kids. I know lots could be a very floating term. I mean four, five, six, even seven in some cases. That's a lot of children. That translates into less personal time, less sleep, You belong to the PTA now, the Poor Tired Adults 
club. You may have heard, what's the difference between a man with $7 million and a man with seven children? The millionaire always wants another million. (laughs) Now, I have one son. He's a fabulous guy. He's my only begotten son. I love him dearly. I've watched him grow up to 16 already. Now, we wanted more, but it was in the Lord's will that we have him. And he's a wonderful guy. Whether you have one or seven, children bring joy and responsibility. Now, I know there's times when you think, a whole lot more responsibility right now outweighing the joy. But I think you're going to see the balance shift. The joy comes when you have, by God's grace, produced a spiritual, God-loving adult. That's the payoff. Now, the goal we remember from last week in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, the goal is to bring them up, to bring them up. And we discussed that that meant to nurture them toward maturity. That's the goal of a parent, to bring them up, nurturing them toward maturity. You want to launch them. You want them to leave the nest ready to face life. How do you do that? How do you train a child up? How do you bring them up? There's an old Chinese proverb that says, one generation plants the trees, the next generation gets the shade. So the question is, what kind of shade are you providing for the next generation? What kind of trees are you planting? What are you doing to protect the next generation from the sun that beats down and can disintegrate a life? How are you planting? We begin doing that by realizing that children are very, very malleable, very impressionable. They look and they listen and they soak so much in and they they pick so much up, don't they? They're so impressionable. A mom was reading her three-year-old a little picture book with words in it, animal book. And she opened a book to one animal and pointed at the animal and said, Now, what is that? She said, That's a cow. What does the cow say? And the little girl arched her back and said, Moo. That's right, sweetheart. That's exactly what the cow says. And then she pointed to the cat. What does the cat say, sweetie? She says, The cat says, Meow. And she rubbed her little hair on Mom's arm. Mom rubbed her head and said, That's... My little girl, you're so smart. And she pointed to the frog and said, What does the frog say? And the little girl smushed her face together and in a slow, croaking voice said, Budweiser. (laughs) Hey, the TV's been on. So impressionable. Pick up so much. So tonight... We don't want you to raise an alcoholic. <laughs> I want to go back to this verse and look at what it is to train up a child, to bring them up, how to fashion a young life. And we want to look at it as Paul put it, negatively, positively, and ultimately. On the negative side, Paul says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. 
on the positive side, but bring them up in the fear or in the training, excuse me, and the admonition of the Lord. Ultimately, those last three words count. Of the Lord. Let's look at the negative side. Tells us what not to do. Do not provoke your children. Now, admittedly, that sounds like a strange command. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Now, does that mean you are never supposed to do anything that would make them mad? Is that even possible? I don't think so. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, I'm going to give you some alternate translations so we can come up to exactly what this means. The New Jewish translation puts it this way. Don't irritate your children to make them resentful. Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message renders it, Fathers, don't exasperate your children by coming down hard on them. Two good translations to fill out what this means. Now, I want you to turn to the next book to the right, the book of Colossians, because there is a parallel verse. It's very closely written to what we find in Ephesians. Colossians chapter 3. You'll notice some of the same terminology. In verse 18, Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. 19, Husbands, love your wives. Do not be bitter toward them. 20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Look at verse 21. Fathers, do not, there it is again, provoke your children, notice, lest they become discouraged. Now we're getting at the heart of this thing. Don't make them resentful. Don't make them discouraged. Don't exasperate them. Let me read this verse to you in the Amplified Bible. Fathers, do not provoke or irritate or fret your children. Don't be hard on them or harass them, lest they become discouraged and sullen and morose and feel inferior and frustrated. Do not break their spirit. The word that Paul used for provoke, he wrote again in the present tense. The present tense. This suggests a pattern of a parent. A pattern of a parent, things that a parent would say and do over a long period of time that would gradually build up resentment that a child has toward a parent. Feelings of frustration, insecurity. The question is, why? What would those things be that a child would be resentful, angry at a parent? Now, there's lots of them. I'm going to give you some. Number one, hypocrisy will do this. When a parent preaches one thing and does another thing, that's hypocrisy. We've all been guilty of it. If you do that over a period of time, if, if a parent's words don't match up to a parent's deeds, a child, and you know, you know kids have very finely tuned antenna. They pick up so much. Bud, why, zer. They pick up so much stuff, and if they see a disparity, they're going to feel like they're being deceived. They're being lied to. They're going to make them frustrated, let down, and eventually they'll turn angry. As John Bunyan wisely said, a man can be a saint abroad and a devil at home. Hypocrisy will do that. So we have to walk carefully. 
Like the father who was leading his son up a mountain trail and it got steeper and steeper and the little boy got scareder and scareder and said, Choose your steps carefully, Daddy. I'm right behind you. And it's true. They're always right behind us, especially in the formative years, so we have to choose those steps wisely. So hypocrisy, number one, can provoke a child to wrath. Number two, inconsistency. When it comes to discipline, a child can be confused if you respond one way one time and another way another time. You let the child throw cake across the bedroom on his birthday. The next day he spills milk, you go ballistic. That's inconsistent. He doesn't know it's his birthday the day before if he's very, very young. Or if there's inconsistency between a mother and a father's disciplinary approach to a child. That child's going to feel very confused and very frustrated and very resentful over time. There were two Harvard sociologists that discovered that among the factors that prevent delinquency in children, number one on the list is firm, fair, and consistent discipline. So hypocrisy, inconsistency. A third would be discouragement. If you criticize a child often enough without counterbalancing that with commenting on what's right about the child. You exasperate and frustrate and cause resentment over a period of time. You see, a child can quickly lose hope if they always hear, something's wrong, something's wrong with me. They're going to grow up thinking they can never, ever please you. Remember Proverbs 15, harsh words stir up anger. Harsh words stir up Anger That can provoke a child to wrath. Number four, favoritism. Do some of you remember growing up and being compared to brothers and sisters? How uncomfortable that was, how you resented that when it was done, especially in a public kind of a setting? Why can't you get as good a grades as your sister? Why can't you be as smart as your brother? Why don't you obey like the other one? That crushes a child's spirit. It's in the Bible, by the way. Remember how Isaac favored Esau? And in the same family, his wife, Rebekah, favored Jacob. And that created a family schism and a feud and problems that we are still seeing the repercussions of today in the Middle East. Favoritism, comparison. A fifth element that will do it is overcommitment. Overcommitment on the part of the parent. It's called the rat race. Steal so much of our time away from our families, from our children, from those precious ones. Now, we all have to work, and I know some of your jobs demand time, and it takes you out of the city, you've got to travel, and your children will understand that. What they won't understand is when you're in town, you are home, that you shut them out. Because now that you're home, you need your hobbies and your sports or whatever else. They must be included. They won't understand that if you shut them out. Charles Francis Adams was a 19th century politician who was very busy, consumed with his job. One day he went fishing with his little boy. 
We always kept a journal, by the way. He wrote in little entries. The day he went fishing with his son, in his journal, he wrote this. Now listen to this father. Went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. Now his son, Brooke, modeling father, kept his own journal as well. And his son wrote in his diary, Went fishing with my father the most wonderful day of my life. Now I wonder if your children think that they're an intrusion by the way you treat them, what you say to them, or what body language you employ when they're around you. You will eventually provoke them to wrath if they're seen as an interference. Number six, domineering parents will provoke children to wrath. Domineering, and I mean either controlling them, smothering them, or overprotecting them. Not letting them make their own choices. Kids need to make their own choices. Every human being has self-determination that needs to be expressed. And, when choices are made, need to experience the consequences. Oh, I know, you don't want them to, do you? Oh, I want to save them from the consequence. Well, how'd you learn the lesson? Well, I had severe consequences. Well, I got to tell you, parents, they're going to have to make choices and see some consequence. That's how some of those lessons are going to be learned. If you smother them, if you fence them in, if you never trust them, they're going to grow up resenting you. Overprotection or domineering. Number seven, minimizing. What I mean by that is you can provoke a child to wrath by disregarding their ideas, their opinions, their feelings. Their world is somehow, to a parent, not quite as significant as the parent's world. And so a child breaks a toy and cries and has a fit or loses a dog, and you say something like, Oh, come on, it was just a toy. It's just a dumb pet. But the level of loss of a child can be as significant to that child as a more astute loss for an adult. A report on child welfare said the primary reason children go to foster homes isn't divorce, isn't financial problems, and is not the death of a parent. The primary reason children go to foster homes is because of disinterested parents. Minimizing. Number eight is the last, last one. There's many more, but I'll stop at eight. Overloading a child. That is where you, you set the bar so high, the expectations are so high. You can do this in life. You should get this level. And we should set standards. I'm not saying that. But we can put a level of pressure upon a child where the child grows up feeling like, I never really pleased them. I never quite made the grade in their eyes. I never pleased my parents. Make it worse, if you withhold your approval until they reach a certain level, there'll be lots of anger, lots of confusion and frustration. Just for the sake of perspective, if you have the highest standards that maybe your children aren't reaching, let me just put a little perspective here for you. Did you know that Napoleon was number 42 in his small class? Did you know that Isaac Newton was next to the lowest in his class. And then there was a six-year-old who came home from school with a note from his teacher saying this child should leave the class 
teacher's words because he's too stupid. That happened to be Thomas Alva Edison. They made it, but maybe not on the parent's schedule. Well, that's the negative side. Don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't exasperate them. Don't, over a period of time, act or say certain things that would cause feelings of frustration to ruin something good. Let's look at the positive side. The positive side is... But bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. There's two parts to that. We bring up a child in training them, and we bring up a child in admonishing them. And I try to go through a lot of the language, and basically, it's the same thing. They're the same idea. They're almost synonyms. One is just stronger than the other. If I were to divide it up, training is the teaching part. In Judaism, parents taught the children from the earliest age. In in a Jewish home, the mother was the teacher from birth to age three, which was the time she was said to have weaned her child. At age three, dad took over for the guys, took the little guys, the little rugrats under his arm, taught them the Torah, the law, taught them a trade, whatever his trade was, Jesus learned carpentry because Joseph was a carpenter. Learned that from the father, the law and the trade. Mother took the girls under her wing. Taught them domestic duties as well as spiritual training. In fact, one rabbi points out that the word in Hebrew for parents is horim, which is the same root as the word for teacher, moray, indicating that parents are the first trainers or teachers that a child ever has. Now that training is sort of summed up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's spiritual in nature as well as a trade. Listen to these words. God says, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away on a journey. When you're lying down and when you're getting up again. In other words, training especially spiritual training, is to be part of everyday life. It's very natural. It's very normal. Use every opportunity to uncover a spiritual truth. Make it fun. Use your imagination. Be creative. My first attempt at this, I don't know how successful it was, was I noticed that my son liked to dress up when he was very young. He wanted to become the person, the figure. If it was an Indiana Jones movie, he morphed into Indiana Jones. He was the hero, I am him. And I think children do that a lot in trying to identify with with a hero of some kind. So we went through the Bible and we did this little thing called say, play, and pray. That's what I called it. Say, play, and pray was basically where, number one, we'd say it. We'd read it. We'd read the Bible story in an easy translation. Number two, we'd play it. We would dress up like the people in the story. So, if it was David and Goliath, guess who would be Goliath? (laughs) The big guy. Guess who would be David, the hero? The little guy. And he had more fun watching me fall, and he wanted to do it all night. Do it again, Dad. 
Do it again, Dad. Nathan, it hurts now. Come on, Dad, one more time. Get out the sword, pretend he's cutting off the head like David. He remembers stories like that because of those episodes. And then number three, we pray about the vital lesson in that text. I think that is part of training a child at his level. Then we're to bring them up in what it says here, admonition. Admonition. Now again, these are sort of like synonyms, but this is a little stronger. Because this word means to place something before the mind. It implies training with correction in view, even rebuke. To place before the mind, we might say to to get in their face. You're training them, but you're making sure they understand it by a word of correction, rebuke, discipline, it is often translated. Proverbs 29 tells us, A child left to himself brings shame. That's the idea. Don't let the child go to himself. Correct, admonish, rebuke if you need to. Well, there was a couple of kids in the Old Testament that could have used this. The sons of Eli. Eli was the priest. Hophni and Phinehas were the two boys. And they were so rambunctious. They were immoral. They were selfish. And the Bible tells us that Eli's sons made themselves vile and Eli did not restrain them. The word restrain in the Septuagint translation is exactly the same word that is used here. Nuthesia to admonish, to restrain. Now that means discipline. I've discovered something. Whenever you talk about discipline, people are very quiet, silent, because it's a confusing issue. It's a frustrating issue. Parents are divided over it. Because we live in a culture that has such a different idea of discipline from the biblical standard. There's two kinds of discipline. There is corrective discipline. And number two, there is preventative discipline. And both are needed. Now, unfortunately, some parents think discipline is all the the first kind. It's the corrective kind. Okay, I'm good at this. I'm good at swatting. There were two kids growing up, and they were talking about spanking in the home. He said, do your parents spank you? And he said, do they spank me? Are you kidding? My mom has a strap in the kitchen, and underneath it are the words of that familiar hymn, I need thee every hour. (laughs) Yes, she spanks me, he said. But that's corrective discipline. There's also preventative discipline. We'll talk more about that at another time. But corrective discipline is important, and I'm going to tell you why. It expresses love. It expresses love. Corrective discipline expresses love for a child. That's exactly the opposite of what anti-spanking advocates are saying today. Don't spank a child. Don't discipline a child. It's hateful. It's ruinous. Listen to this. Kevin Ryan, who's the director of the Center for Advancement of Ethics and Character from Boston University, said something that was quoted in the New York Times... And it sounds very mild and innocuous. He said, mild physical punishment, mild physical punishment is appropriate in extreme cases. That's all he said. Mild physical punishment in extreme cases is appropriate. 
And he said, I have never gotten so much hate mail about anything else in my life. People are irrational over this issue. But it expresses love. The Bible says, whom the Lord love, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Have you ever had the Lord discipline you? And you think, why would you do that to me? Because he loves you. didn't want to leave you the way you are. You don't want to stay the way you are, do you? It's part of God's love. And I'll tell you why it expresses God's love. Because corrective discipline produces fruit. It works. Proverbs 22. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, most every parent I know agrees with the first part of that verse. It's the second part they have trouble with. Yeah, I agree with that. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But getting them to follow through with the second part, a rod of correction will drive it far from them, can be difficult. Because of the overwhelming advice of experts who will say that to spank a child is counterproductive. It will produce antisocial effects. U.S. News and World Report did an article about that, highlighting corporal punishment. And they noted something about the experts. They noted that the experts base all of their findings against corporal punishment on a body of research that is at best inconclusive and at worst badly flawed. And the same article, quoting recent studies, indicate that spanking will make children less likely to fight with others and more likely to obey parents. So the Bible indicates that discipline is positive and fruitful when done rightly, correctly. Listen to Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14. Don't fail to correct your children. They won't die if you spank them. Physical discipline may well save them from death. So, corrective discipline indicates love. Corrective discipline produces fruit. Third, corrective discipline must be timely. Don't wait a month. I didn't do anything last month, but you really made me angry now. It should be done timely. Proverbs 13, he who spares the rod hates his son. He who loves him disciplines him promptly. Promptly. Proverbs 19, verse 18, chasten your son while there's hope. And don't be a willing party to his death. In other words, corrective discipline should begin in a child's life early when the child is young and impressionable. Don't worry. They're not going to grow up resenting you if it's done fairly, firmly, and consistently, as a Harvard study suggested. You don't show a child that you love a child by not administering discipline. You just show a child that you're too weak to care. Number four about corrective discipline. Corrective discipline requires tools. You notice that it always talks about a rod. Have you noticed that? A rod of discipline. Now, I'm going to be careful here. The word rod in Hebrew is shebet. It means a staff, a branch, or an offshoot. It suggests something other than the hand, something separate from the body. A rod of correction will drive it far from him. Don't spare the rod. 
I don't think you should use a hand. That's my opinion based upon that. I don't think your flesh should touch the flesh of a child. I don't think it should be your hand. The Bible doesn't say, hit your child with your hand or fist or foot or headbutt, but a rod. I say, use your hands for embracing, for affirming, for cuddling, and make some distance between your hand and that child's body. It should be something that will get their attention without damaging the child. By the way, never strike a child on the face. Never. That's corrective discipline. Then there is preventative discipline, and like any good doctor who will use not only corrective medicine, but preventative medicine, any good parent would also want to use preventative discipline. What is preventative discipline? Training, playing, loving, hanging out with. And that kind of discipline, both of them will reinforce each other. The corrective discipline simply reinforces the preventative discipline, the acceptance part of it. So how are you in that area, the, um, the preventative part? A Gallup Youth Survey said out of 1,000 teens, 42% had not received words of praise during the past 24-hour period. Half had gotten no hug or kiss. 44% had not heard the words, I love you. They had not gotten preventative discipline. Next week, we're going to look a little more specifically at that. What do we train them specifically? What does the Bible teach us to teach them in this preventative area? But I want you to look at the third part of tonight's message. Because it's not only fashioning a young life on the negative side, what not to do, what to do on the positive side, but ultimately, notice the last part of the verse. It says, of the Lord. He's always the focus, always. Don't provoke them to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That is, spiritual training and admonition that has a spiritual focus. This is what it means. Lead your children to Christ. Disciple them in Christ. Show them how to love Christ. Teach them that. Model that. Do that. Like Charles Spurgeon said, before a child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. Better yet, the work will thrive if he learns before he's five. Start young. Show them the way to heaven. Dr. M.R. DeHaan once made these statistical quotes and the Billy Graham Association picked up on them later. After the age of 35 years, only one person in 50,000 receives Christ. After the age of 45, only one in 300,000 will receive Christ. And after the age of 75, one in 700,000 plus are converted. That's the ultimate goal. The Lord, of the Lord, in the Lord, to the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What is the most frequently quoted Bible verse when it comes to raising children? You heard it. Every, every time somebody dedicates a child, I think almost, they pull up that one. Train up a child in the way that he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I, I have a feeling that some of us have thought that that means basically this. Take him to church every week. Make him go to church every week. 
Put them in Sunday school every week. Give them some Bible verses to memorize. Got to have the Ten Commandments as part of that. Learn some Beatitudes. Pray before breakfast, before dinner, before you go to bed. And enforce that on a child. And eventually that child's going to sow wild oats and turn away and rebel. But eventually, when he's really old, perhaps, we hope, we trust, he'll come back to the Lord. I don't think it means that. I'll tell you why. The word train doesn't mean give the kid a curriculum. The Hebrew word train up a child is the word hanak, which means to stimulate the taste buds. Here's how the word was used by the Hebrews. When a child was born and the midwife helped deliver the baby, the midwife in those days would place the baby, the infant, in her arms, and there was some crushed fruit Dates, usually. Often date honey, which is prevalent in the Middle East. The midwife would stick her index finger in the date honey and touch it to the lips of the child, massaging the fruit or the date honey on the gums in the palate, creating a a sucking response. The child would begin to suck, stimulating the taste, creating a thirst for something. And then the child was given to the mother to the breast, once stimulated She would want to eat more, or he would want to eat more. So the idea is to affect spiritual taste, train a child in the way he should go. Which, as Abraham Lincoln said, the parent needs to go that way himself. And that's how you're going to train a child. That's how you're going to stimulate a young man or a young woman after the things of the Lord stimulating a taste for godliness, they see it. They just don't hear it. They see it. That's what it means. So what shade will you provide for the next generation? What kind of trees are you planting? What will the next generation in your family look like? Would you just remove yourself from this present moment and think about a hundred years from now? This author does. It says, a hundred years from now... It will not matter what kind of car I drove, what kind of house I lived in, how much I had in my bank, or what my clothes looked like. One hundred years from now, it will not matter what kind of school I attended, what kind of typewriter I used, we would say computer now, how large or how small my church, but the world may be a little better because I was important in the life of one child. hundred years from now, what kind of shade will be provided? So some of us have the great high calling of being parents. Some of us are in the middle of the PTA, poor, tired adults. But you're fashioning a life. You're training. You're stimulating the taste of a child. And they will either grow up very resentful very embittered, very angry because of some of those provocations, or trained and admonished in the Lord. Lord, that's our goal. We want to bring them up. We want to elevate them higher. We want to lead them to you. We want them to walk with you. We want them to be equipped, well-equipped, to reach their generation We want to teach them how to sow seeds, how to plant the right trees, so that many generations to follow would be able to hear the gospel and have the influence of a parent 
grandparent, great, great grandparent. Help us, Lord, once again we ask as we take these truths to heart and apply them to our families. In Jesus' name.